All right, I'm sorry to cut your meet and greet time short. <laughs> we got a lot to cover this morning, so I figured I would interrupt you because um, I know how eager you are to get into God's Word. So grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. By the way, if you're new, my name's Obed. I'm one of the leaders here um, at King's Cross, and thank you for coming. It's good to have you. It's good to have you. That's my daughter. Look how strong she is. Did <laughs> you see that? carrying a chair bigger than her. All right, book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. Also, if you're new, we've been in a series based on the book of Hebrews, and it has been um, very, very, in the past few weeks, it's been quite challenging. We've had to cover a lot, um, but we are back this week, and I am pleased to tell you that the passage we're going to be studying is, it's tough. It's a tough one. And so welcome, welcome, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through to chapter 6, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through to chapter 6, verse 12 will be our focus this morning. And as always, as is our custom and our desire to honor God's word, may you stand for the reading of it. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, verse 12 reads, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil." Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For, the, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire 
each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Weesh. I heard someone say, wow, over oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that should be your reaction. Welcome. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this morning. And I say thank you because as we approach a passage like this, which is packed with so much content and so much truth, um, but also has many challenges, God, I say thank you because of the hope we have in Jesus Christ. I say thank you because of your Holy Spirit who, who gives us understanding. And I say thank you because of your grace that sustains us and keeps sustaining us from now until the end. So God, give us understanding. Give us understanding. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. A young woman prays a prayer after her friend shares the gospel with her over coffee. She immediately um, gets involved in the local church, but sadly, after a few months, she begins to drift from the church and Christianity, disillusioned with the church's stance on certain social issues. A prominent church leader announces on his social media account, that he's leaving his church to become a Muslim because Islam has become the real impetus for social change. A woman faces terrible persecution from family and the government as a result of her conversion to Christianity. Under pressure, she finally recants returning to her former religion. A student is invited to a summer camp by her Christian friends. She is greatly impacted by the teachings and the fellowship. One night after hearing a camp leader share her testimony, she makes a decision to follow Jesus. She returns home, and a week into the new semester, she decides to unfollow Jesus. She was a PK, a pastor's kid. She grew up in the church. Um, she was part of many Bible studies hosted at her home. Um, she was baptized at an early age. And it, she was baptized in a, as an early age and was involved in the local church. If you were to speak with her today, you would be surprised to find out that she has now fallen away as an adult. She has deconstructed her faith and has adopted an eclectic mix of New Age spirituality, philosophy, and naturalism. What about the promising young church leader who served faithfully, who displayed extraordinary gifts as a preacher, leader, and evangelist, winning many people to Christ 
but is now a staunch atheist who invests much of his time and resources towards dismantling the Christian faith. What about the young lady who spent many years in the church and has a robust knowledge of the Bible, who is now an LGBTQ activist and wants nothing to do with Christianity? And what about the influential Christian apologist who was exposed as a sexual predator? After his death, it was discovered that throughout his many years of public ministry, he preyed on the vulnerable. He leveraged his ministry influence to intimidate victims. And he convinced the world he couldn't be the kind of monster they imagined sexual predators to be. Such scenarios are all too common in the church today. Most of us have certainly struggled, struggled with the pain and confusion of seeing those who have come into the church and have professed to love and follow Jesus to one day turn and walk away. Apostasy is the word used to describe the actions of these people. The dictionary defines apostasy as the abandonment or renunciation of a religious or political belief. Apostasy describes the many believers who seemed strong in their faith, but eventually walked away from Jesus Christ and his kingdom. It's one of the most agonizing and disturbing experiences in Christianity. And our passage for this morning addresses this topic of apostasy. That is why this passage, um, especially chapter 6, verses 4 till 6, is considered by many to be one of the most controversial and frequently debated in the entire Bible. Um, like you guys know, we're not quite sure who the author of Hebrews is. Um, he's unknown, but what we know is that everything he writes is true. And everything he writes, we are expected to take to heart. And so this morning, this is what's going to happen. Our passage this morning um, will do this. We'll confront the immature, expose the apostate, and affirm the beloved. First, this passage wants to confront the immature. Look at verse 11. It says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now, underline or circle about this. This is all pointing back to verses 9 and 10. What does verses 9 and 10 say? It says, And being made perfect, he, that is Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, 
being designated by God a high priest about the, after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews wants to tell them more about how Jesus became the source of eternal salvation. He also wants to tell them more about the connection between Jesus and this guy called Melchizedek. Can't pronounce it, Melchizedek. But he says to them, I, I can't tell you this. I'm not ready to tell you this because you have become dull of hearing. In other words, I have shown you why Jesus is a superior high priest. And I really want to tell you more about the connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. But I can't right now because you have become dull of hearing. The Greek word for the English word dull is nopros. Everybody say notros. That was good. Thank you. Depending on the context, notros can mean sluggish, dull, lazy. Um, in the world of sport, notros can be used to describe an athlete who lacks discipline and as a result is out of shape, lazy, and sluggish. It conveys this sense of being careless and sluggish in some aspect of life. Therefore, when the recipients of this letter are described as dull of hearing, right, it means that they have become careless and sluggish when it comes to listening to biblical teaching. What are the consequences of being dull of hearing? Look at verse 12. It tells us. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Dull of hearing, this is telling us that dull of hearing interferes with spiritual growth and maturity. In other words, dull of hearing is what causes spiritual maturity. Um, you see the phrase, um, basic principles of the oracles of God. Right? You see that phrase. It's another way of saying the elementary teachings of the Christian faith. It's the basics of, Christian, of the Christian faith. What he's saying to them is that, look, by now, you need to be teaching others the basics of the Christian faith. But instead, right, you need someone else to teach you what you already should know. He's disappointed in them. They should be further along than they are. And because of this... He describes the spiritually mature and he likens them to babies who can only handle milk. And because they're like babies, look at verse 13. He says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Put differently, individuals who are spiritually mature live on milk and as a result do not have the ability to recognize the differences between right and wrong. They have grown, spiritually immature people have failed to grow up spiritually as they have grown older physically. 
William Barclay says this, it is the sorrow of the writer of Hebrews that after many years of Christianity, his people have never got past the basics. They are like children who do not know the difference between right and wrong. Let's remember that Hebrews is being written to a group of Christians, right? A Christian community. And he's saying to them, and within your community, there are people who should be mature, but they're not. And I don't know how big that Christian community was, but I'm sure it was smaller or the same size as us. And so in light of that, The truth, if we believe what he's saying here, and it's not just for the um, the, the, um, church um, in the first century, what we need to recognize that it relates to us and it um, applies to us, meaning that within our church, some of you are spiritually immature. You have not grown spiritually as you have grown older physically. Look at verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. While the spiritually immature are babies who can only handle milk, the spiritually mature are able to handle solid food, i.e. Um, the, the advanced teachings of the faith. Because of this, they know how to make the right choices when confronted with critical decisions. Whenever you visit a doctor and the doctor he diagnoses an issue that you have, what does he do next? Does he go, okay, here's the problem, um, see you later? He doesn't, does he? He says, okay, here's the problem and here's a prescription of some sort of medication or treatment that will help you. Like a doctor who diagnoses a health problem and then prescribes medication or treatments for healing, the author of Hebrews does something similar. What he's just done is he's diagnosed that some of them are their spiritual condition. He's like, some of you are spiritually immature, and you should be mature by now. They should be further along than they are. And now what he does is he offers a prescription for their present condition and moves on to maturity. Look at verse, um, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. It reads, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal um, judgment. With these words, what he's doing is that he's exhorting them to move on in the faith, progressing beyond the elementary teachings about Christ. And when he's doing this, he doesn't mean that they should have nothing to do with the basic doctrines of Christianity. He's not saying forget about the the, the basics. But what he's saying is that the foundations of the Christian faith are still needed, but you need to move on. 
Um, Jared Wilson helps us here. He says, um, so the exhortation here is not about leaving the gospel behind, but leaving the shadows behind to walk in the light of Christ. And further, the admonition is to grow up in the gospel beyond initial repentance and individual salvation. It's about following the signpost into the land of destination. It's a call to maturity that is gospel-driven, not post-gospel or even gospel-latent. And so the author then sums up the admonition to move on from these basic teachings by expressing his confidence in the move forward. Look at verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. This we will do if God permits. Um, Fitting conclusion because of the tense of the verb go on in verse 1. Okay, That verb is passive. And because of this, it can be translated as this, let us be carried on. What this means is that God is the one who will move both the author and the community forward together in the process of growth and maturity. And so spiritually speaking, let me ask you a question. Where are you? Do you see a pattern of growth in your life by which you are moving from the need of milk? Or are you growing and eating solid food? Would you say that the past year of your Christian life has been characterized by profession in understanding Christian teachings or have you been stagnant? How are you doing? Are you maturing? Or have you paused in your growth and maturity as a Christian? And so, the immature have been confronted. Next, the author will expose the apostate. Um, In the next few verses, the author of Hebrews Um, What he does is he gives a well-thought-out and harsh warning that is meant to put fear into the hearts of those drifting from the faith. Um, Adele Kende um, says this, The preacher's purpose is to warn, to caution, even to alarm, lest we fall away and find ourselves incapable of repenting. So things are going to get really interesting. That was just the beginning. We're going to get deep. Who's ready? Of course you are. As we get into the text, keep in mind that the genre of this passage is exhortation. What the author wants more than anything is to motivate to action rather than simply offer theological insights. And so have that in mind. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. Reads, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God 
to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So the first question um, we have to address is this. Who are the people being described um, in these verses? They're described as people who have, been, who, who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. In short, let me summarize for you. These people have had experiences that are related to Christianity. All right, look at it. Being enlightened, tasted heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. And it gets even more interesting because it says, even though they have had all of these spiritual experiences, we're left scratching our heads when we're told at the beginning of verse 6, it says, and then have fallen away. The phrase fallen away, go on, underline it or circle it, is best viewed as the culminating experience of a series of experiences. In other words, these people have been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of God's word, and then have fallen away. The verb to fall away can simply mean to go astray. And in this context, I'm going to accelerate forward here. In this context, to fall away is another way of saying that these people rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior even after having spiritual experiences that are related to Christianity. And so what's the outcome of rejecting Christ? What's the outcome of falling away after all of these Christian-related experiences? Um, look at verse 4, 5, 6 again. We're going to read it again. It's important. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. This is the outcome. Okay, the outcome. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God, to their own harm and holding them up to content. The outcome of making an informed decision to reject Jesus Christ after having spiritual experiences is, and we're told, is the impossibility of repentance. Put simply, those who have had spiritual experiences in the past and have fallen away, rejected Jesus Christ, cannot be brought back to true repentance. In other words, they cannot be saved. Our Del Kane Day helps us here. 
The warning of Hebrews 6 announces the unbreakable connection between falling away from Christ and the impossibility of being restored to repentance. So the question we have to ask is, why is this? Why is repentance impossible for those who persist in rejecting Jesus Christ? Repentance is impossible for those who have rejected Christ because, the text helps us here, right? Verse 6, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This doesn't mean they are literally crucifying Christ again. Jesus only died once and for all. What this means, what, what this means is that repentance is no longer a possibility for those who reject Jesus because by rejecting the Son of God, listen to this, they themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. In other words, put simply, they are behaving just like those who crucified Jesus. They are mocking him, rejecting him, and trying to humiliate him. George Guthrie says this, instead of being shamed in the eyes of the world by identification with, the, with Jesus, the apostates stand with those before the cross who cast insults, disparaging Christ's claim as the true Messiah. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 6 has brought about a great deal of anxiety for many professing Christians. And as some of you are listening, you may be developing some sort of anxiety, and the question you're probably asking is, could this happen to me? Could I one day wake up and find myself hating Jesus and rejecting him rather than loving him. And this is mainly because this verse, these verses seem to suggest that a Christian can lose their salvation. And so is this what these verses are suggesting? Is it possible for Christians to lose their salvation? To answer this important question, we must, again, first really determine the people being addressed here. Who are these people? Who are these people that have had these spiritual experiences? And what do these spiritual experiences mean? Hebrews was written to Jews who had converted to Christianity. Therefore, the people being described, okay, um, the people being talked to, sorry, are Christians. 
And this is one of the reasons why some people believe that Christians can lose their salvation. Because they're like, if, if he's addressing Christians in this way, then that means Christians can lose their salvation. Other people reject this view and believe that genuine Christians can never lose their salvation. This is because they believe Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 to 6, refers to people who appeared to be Christians, but were not truly saved. This creates another important question. Is it possible for a person to have spiritual experiences related to Christianity and yet never know Jesus in a saving way? Let me ask her again. Is it possible for someone to have experiences related to Christianity, tasted of the Holy Spirit, shared in the Holy Spirit, been part of the church, appreciated God's word? Is it possible for that person to never know Jesus in a saving way? And I would say yes. In fact, I believe these are the kinds of people being described in verses 4 and 6 of, um, of chapter 6. They are people who appear to be Christians but were never saved in the first place. In other words, even though they had Christian-related spiritual experiences, they were never saved. And let me show you why this is true. Okay, let me show you why this is true. Um, look at verses 4, 5, and 6 again. Okay, um, verses 4, 5, and 6 again. And so first, the reasons why these people were never saved is this. First point, okay, is that not all spiritual experiences are signs of real faith. Not all spiritual experiences are signs of real faith. Um, verse 4, 5, 6 re reads, read that again. It says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. Those who believe that a legit Christian can lose their salvation believe that anyone who has had the experiences described in the verses we we just read must be truly saved and this reasoning makes sense because these are experiences familiar to born again Christians but a closer look reveals that a person who has had these experiences may not be necessarily saved put simply not all spiritual experiences are signs of real faith okay all of us know someone perhaps family members who have had genuine spiritual experiences related to Christianity yet have fallen away. I have a close relative, close relative, who grew up, I grew up with them. Um, they, they went to church. They were passionate about the Christian faith. They even got tattoos with sola scriptura and scripture and, and they loved Jesus and they were the defender of the faith. 
And right now, this day, they no longer follow Jesus. And they want nothing to do with Jesus. You all know someone who's not a stranger to the gospel or to the church. They have been enlightened. They have heard the truths of the gospel over and over again. They have understood what it means. They know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. They have shared in the Holy Spirit, mainly because they have expressed real remorse for their sinful behaviors and have made every effort to overcome it. Okay? But notice that it says, shared in the Holy Spirit. Elsewhere, in other parts of Scripture, when it's describing um, the experience Christians have with the Holy Spirit, it will use words like filled with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit. And so this is different. Shared is different. Um, You know someone who has tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and as they are exposed to God's Word, they appreciate God's Word. Recently, I did a wedding Okay, I did a wedding. I loved the wedding. It was an awesome wedding. Um, And most of the people there weren't Christians. And after, I got like the most response, positive response I've ever got for a wedding. And basically what I did was talk about 1 Corinthians 13 and what love was and what love is not and everything. And people heard it and they were just blown away. They were like, what is this? And I was like, this is just the basics, man. Just the basics. But they were amazed. Um, when I was leaving, I had this guy, you know, drunk come up to me. And he was like, oh, I just got to see you before you go, man. And I can't act as a drunk person. But he basically, uh, he's just like, everything you said was amazing. <laughs> I just cry, And I'll never forget it, right? We all know people who are not Christians that love and appreciate God's word. We all know people that have benefited greatly from a Christian community. They love the Christian community. Um, On Thursday, I went to LA with a friend. He invited me. He's a good friend of mine and was like, I'm going to go and see Jordan Peterson and I have a spare ticket. Do you want to come? And I was like, okay, I'll go and listen to Jordan Peterson. And I got there and he had like Q&A where people could submit their questions and everything. He's a brilliant man, by the way. That guy, wow. Um, What a man. But anyway, so I went and, um, yeah, the questions. And one, uh, one of the questions he answered was this. I am an atheist, but I love the church community I'm part of. What should I tell my toddler? I am an atheist. I attend church, and I love the church community I'm part of. What should I tell my toddler? We all know of people who have had all of these spiritual experiences. They have loved the church, but then they have fallen away because they refuse to put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They seem to be strong in their faith, but eventually walk away from Christ and his kingdom. Wayne Grudem says this, These factors are all positive, and people who have experienced these things may be genuine Christians. 
but these factors alone are not enough to give conclusive evidence of any of the decisive beginning stages of the Christian life, regeneration, saving faith, and repentance onto life, justification, adoption, um, initial sanctification. In fact, these experiences are all preliminary to those decisive beginning stages of the Christian life. The actual spiritual state of those who have experienced these things is still unclear. George Guthrie also says, it is entirely possible that some who come into the church and participate in what seems to be the life of faith have yet to experience regeneration. They manifest what seems to be spiritual realities and perhaps have repented publicly. We must be careful, however, not to equate participation with spiritual transformation. If one has truly been transformed, it will be manifest over a long span of time. Spiritual experiences do not always equal genuine faith. That's why it's likely anyone who completely unfollows Jesus may not have been his follower in the first place. This admonition serves as a reminder to all of us to ensure that we rely on Jesus and not on spiritual experiences as the basis of our salvation. We are saved through faith, alone in Christ alone. Your spiritual experiences cannot be what you rely on to determine whether you're saved or not. We are saved in Christ alone. Second reason why um, verses 4, 6 do not describe a genuine Christian who has lost their faith is because bad ground cannot produce a good crop. Bad ground cannot produce a good crop. Look at verse 7, 7 and 8. Look at verse 7 and 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those, um, for those, those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Like, what's this? So he's talking about um, those who have had these spiritual experiences um, cannot be saved, all of that. And then he starts to talk about agriculture. And farming. And is intentional. Author's brilliant and knows what he's doing because the situation described in verses 4 and 6 is illustrated um, with these verses that have agricultural imagery. Verses 7 to 8 describe the two common experiences known to farmers or those involved in some sort of agriculture. Sam Storms um, helps us here. He says, the picture is of two different kinds of ground altogether. One responds to the rain, spiritual blessing, and opportunities by producing bountiful vegetation, while the other is barren, lifeless, and thus condemned. Likewise, there are two different people who hear the gospel. One responds with saving faith and brings forth life. 
but the other person hears the truths of the gospel, appreciates it, right? Encouraged by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but then eventually turns their back on it all. They're like a field that never yields vegetation and therefore condemned. They have been repeatedly exposed to the gospel and the benefits it brings, yet have not embraced Christ as Lord and our Savior. Wayne Grudem says this, The idea of land that once bore good fruit and now bears thorns is not compatible with this picture. The implication is this, while the positive experiences listed in verses 4-6 do not provide us enough information to know whether the people were truly saved or not, the committing of apostasy and holding Christ up to contempt do reveal the true nature of those who fall away. All along they have been like bad ground that can only bear bad fruit. If the metaphor of the thorn-bearing land explains verses 4 and 6, then their falling away shows that they were never saved in the first place. There are many other reasons why this is describing individuals who professed or appeared to be Christians but were not. We don't have enough time to get into it, but I wanted to focus what was in the text and so to conclude, the people described falling away after positive experiences are not now and never were born again believers. They are not Christians who have lost their salvation because they never were Christians in the first place. You cannot lose something you never had. I help out here at the Soledad Club, and one Tuesday there was an event, and after the event I came to help set up and tear down and everything. And one of the um, attendees of the event, it was a dance group, by the way. They have a dance group here that meets second and third Tuesdays of every month. They're the cutest. And one of the guys came up to me and said, hey, um, as you're tearing down and clearing up, um, if you see a mobile phone, uh, uh, sorry, a cell phone, let me know. Just let me know. And I've lost my cell phone. I can't find it anywhere. And he's freaking out. His wife is freaking out. And everyone's freaking out. And I was like, yeah, I gotcha, I gotcha. Um, they all left. And not long after, I got a text that's from his wife that said, we found it. It was at home. He never brought it. <laughs> he had lost something he never had. Every Christian falls into sin. Every Christian has faulty worship from time to time. And that does not make them apostate. Therefore, John Owen defined an apostate as someone who has displayed continued persistent rebellion and disobedience to God and his word, or total and final public renunciation of all the chief principles and doctrines of Christianity. 
Jesus t- told a parable about a sower in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. And in that parable, um, it talks about different soils, and there's a sower. And the interesting thing about that parable is that only um, the fourth soil is called good and subsequently bears fruit. The other three represent those who hear the gospel and respond with varying degrees of understanding, interest, and joy, but not one of them bears fruit that testifies of genuine spiritual life. That is to say, they have been enlightened and have tasted the goodness and power of the ministry of the Spirit and the blessings of the kingdom, yet have made a decision to turn their back on the truth when trials, troubles, or temptations come their way. Apostasy is proof that they were not saved in the first place. Some of you are still wondering whether those who commit apostasy are in a temporal, temporary state of rebellion and rejection. Will they finally get saved, like the relative of mine? Will he get saved? Is this a temporary time? He's tasted it, but has rejected. And will he return? It's hard to know. I don't have all those answers to those questions. I don't because the topic of apostasy, there's so much mystery to it. There really is. But what is clear is that based on their present decision to reject Jesus, they were never saved in the first place. I'm sure some of you here this morning are still freaking out. You're anxious about your future. You're saying to yourself, if they can fall, then what hope is there for me? You're not sure whether you are truly saved or you think you are saved but are not. And one day you're not sure. You could wake up as an apostate. So the question is, how do you know you're truly saved? How do you know you'll not fall away? How do you know you will persevere until the end? Thankfully, these are the questions and concerns the author of Hebrews concludes with. Look at verses 9, 10, and 11. In it, he affirms the beloved. Look at verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Oh, I love that word, beloved. Beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Earlier, he says, in the case of those who have been enlightened, can't repent and everything. Here, he's saying, 
yet in your case, beloved, he's talking to the church. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. And what are those better things? Things that belong to salvation. And so what are the reasons why a writer is confident they share in things that belong to salvation? Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The reason the author of Hebrews is confident is here as our genuine saved is because of the work and the love they have shown for God's name and his people. In other words, their faith has been displayed in their labors in ministry, their affection for God, and their love for his people. Michael Kruger says, we can treat these three as a litmus test for whether we are really saved because together they express what it means to be Christ-like. And any Christian, no matter how long they have been a Christian, can participate in them at some level. Verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. As followers of Jesus, what are we being challenged to do? What are we being challenged to do? To reject lives of lazy mediocrity. But instead, follow in the footsteps of great people of faith and persevere until the end. And so this morning, I know it's been challenging and a lot community groups. If you're not in community group or you're not planning on going this this week, make sure you do. You need to gather with other Christians in order to really grapple and wrestle with this text. I've just given you an overview. That was an overview. Give me four hours and we can break. We could get really, community group will give you another two hours or something like that, yeah? And so this morning, the author of Hebrews has exposed to us three different people. The immature, the apostate, and the beloved. And in a room of this size, there possibly are all those three people. Some of you are immature. And you need to grow up as a Christian. Grow up as a Christian. And how do you grow up as a Christian? You're feeding on God's word. You are praying. You're gathering of other believers. And what you hear, you apply. You act out what you hear. Commit. Carve out chunks of your life and time to studying and feeding on God's word. Because it is what will make you grow. Some of you are mature because you're just malnourished. You want to grow, but you're not doing anything about it. You're not being intentional. God has placed in you a desire to know him and experience him and grow and be changed by him. And so take those steps. Some of you are apostate. Apostasy is to be expected. And this is hard for me to say, but there is a possibility that in the coming weeks, months of years, 
we will discover or we will get news that some of you, one of you, two, some of you in this room have turned their backs and are rejecting Christ. That's a possibility. And some of you in this room are the beloved. My prayer is that if you are immature, you would respond to the confrontation by committing to new rhythms in your life that will help you grow as a Christian. And if you are a beloved, your confidence, listen to this, if you are a Christian, your confidence in remaining loyal to Jesus should not be in you. Your confidence in remaining loyal to in Jesus must rest in the power of Christ to sustain you with his grace. R.C. Sproul says this, when God writes our names in the Lamb's book of life, he doesn't do it with an eraser handy. He does it for eternity and he seals us in the beloved for all time. He also said, we are secured not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. The apostate never lost their salvation because they never had it in the first place. But the true Christian, the beloved, will never lose their salvation because the one who saved them will sustain them until the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time. Thank you for encouraging us. Continue to do that still more as we sing and as we celebrate communion. In Jesus' name, amen.